I cannot be shamed. <laughs> I am shameless. I feel like I feel like that's a perfect that's a perfect cap. I don't gotta prove shit. I'm gonna just that's gonna be the quote when we promote this. You should feel y'all. God, don't gotta prove shit to none of y'all niggas. Now listen to the rest of the interview. Said other things. You know, teasers teasers exist for a reason. Teasers, yeah, cold opens, teasers, boom. Welcome back, everyone, to a very, very, very special episode of Stuck with Damon Young. And so writers just as a collective have several weird and nebulous and intersecting anxieties about revealing exactly how much money we make, which is one of the reasons why it was so remarkable last week to read multiple news stories about the homie Decephilia's new million dollar book deal and to talk about, I guess, why she decided to be so transparent about how much money she's making. We have Deshaun on the show today. And we also talk about both of our non-traditional journeys to be able to write full-time. And then, for Dare Damon, Morgan, the producer, makes her long-awaited return to help answer a question from a person who thinks the tip screen has made the expectation of tipping unreasonable. All right, y'all. Let's get it. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Deisha Filial is the author of the award-winning The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Deisha also will be footing the bill the next time she comes to Pittsburgh and we decide to go out to eat. Deisha, what's good? You. Always you. It's great to see you. You too. So last week, you were in the news. Mm -hmm. ABC News, multiple different publications, major publications, major platforms. Mm -hmm. Seven-figure deal. For two books. So congratulations on that. Thank you. And I just saw something this morning where you, um, something about the UK rights too. So can you explain like that? Because I wasn't even sure about what that means when I saw you post that. Yes. When the books were on submission, they were on submission in the UK and in the US at the same time. And so, but two separate sets of rights. And so for the UK rights, that deal happened faster. And so it closed before, you know, that auction closed before the one in the US. But, you know, we've been waiting because like publishing goes on hiatus for the month of August. This all happened at the end of July. And then the UK agreed to let the US announce first or, you know, so it was well, a little bit simultaneous. So Friday and then Monday in the in the UK, the announcement was made. So. Okay. Or Thursday, I guess it was Thursday of last week. Congrats again. Thank you. And now we were, Disha and I were both teaching at Bona um, in late June, I guess last week of June, first week of July, mm-hmm. we were at Bona and Bona is an annual retreat slash workshop for writers of color, takes place at the University of Miami. And we were both instructors there. And I remember 
Okay, so what Deisha and I did while we were down there is that the courses that we taught were three hours long. And five days, three-hour courses, we each had about 10 people in our classrooms. And at the end of the second hour, because our classrooms were right next to each other, we would combine classrooms and became just basically like a round-robin, ask-us-anything sort of deal for the last hour for the students. And I remember that you were actually in a conversation, something book deal related. Yes. Were you talking about the UK stuff or about the American stuff then? So that it was all happening at once because the submission timeline. So when we were at Vona, the books had just gone out on submission. Okay. And then there was interest. And then, you know, when there you have multiple parties interest, that's when it, it goes into a bidding situation. So the bidding didn't start, though, until several weeks later. But okay. the books went out on submission while we were at Vona. Disha, I mean, it's we've known each other for almost 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And it's just been, I guess we both have had, quote unquote, non-traditional paths to publishing. Yes. Yeah. You know, where you had full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, I had full-time jobs. You know, we both worked through weird employment. We've both blogged. We've both basically everything that you could do on the internet as a writer. Yeah, right. And no MFAs. We don't have MFAs. Yes. No MFAs. Okay. I guess when you had your ambitions, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Back then when we were first hanging out to publish a book and to, to have your book, mm-hmm. how does this current reality match up to the ambitions that you had then? So I started the novel that I just sold not long after we first met. So I started around 2007 working on that novel. I went to Hearst and Wright Summer Writers Week that year, and Matt Johnson was my instructor. And he was great. The workshop was great. Sort of like Vona, but, Mm -hmm. you know, but just for Black writers. And he was the fiction faculty for that year. And he was just so encouraging. And he encouraged me and connected me with an agent who was speaking there as well, who I ended up talking to about something else completely. But it was Matt really telling me that I had something there. The book has changed a lot since 2007, obviously, but his encouragement sort of meant everything. And so my focus became, I want to finish this novel. That was my ambition. But I was, as you said, doing all those things in the background, the freelancing and all of that. And then for three years, 2016 to 2019, I was working at PNC. And it was always like, I'm trying to make a living, but I also want to write this fiction, which nobody's paying me. So I got to do all the other things that pay, you know, you know, the drill. And so for the longest time, it was, I want to finish a work of fiction, specifically that novel. And then it pivoted because I wasn't finishing the novel and the agent that I currently have, Danielle, who I have for my co-parenting book, which was actually my first book. She was encouraging me around the novel. But when I was stalled, she's like, you know, you've been writing these church lady stories. And she encouraged me to take that pivot and work on the collection. So by that time, it was like, you know, my dream would be to just write. I love students. I love mentoring. I love, you know, the magic that, you know, happens in workshop. I don't necessarily love all of the admin, and I certainly don't love all that comes with academia. So my ambition came to publishing a full-length work of fiction, then which I did with Church Ladies, then get this novel published that I started in 2007. But ultimately, what I wanted was to not have to do anything else. I just want to write. 
was a music soul child. Just let me sing or whatever <laughs> that album was. That's me, but for books. And to me, that would be the gift. That would be the ultimate, just to be able to focus on my creative work. And so that's what's happened. When were you able to like first like make the transition to like, you know what, I'm not doing anything else. I don't have to get another job. Like my writing and all the stuff, all the supplementary stuff, whether that's workshops, speaking, whatever surrounding the writing is what pays my bills and allows me to live and eat. When did that happen for you? That was like 2021. Okay. Because I started at PNC in 2016. I was still freelancing. In late August 2019, I walked out of PNC one day. I had a terrible boss and I just was like, fuck it one day. And I just walked out in the middle of the day. And thanks to friends, I was still able to pay my rent for a while until I got a contract job remotely working for a foundation in Indianapolis, thanks to another friend. And days after I walked out of PNC, I turned in the manuscript for Church Ladies and then Once Church Ladies was received the way it was received, then I got speaking engagements and could make more money there. I certainly didn't make money on Church Ladies on the front end because the advance was like $4,000. But then I started getting some royalties. And so I want to say it was like around fall 2021, I ended the contract work that I had been doing because I was like, I can't give that my all when I'm trying to do these other things. And it would have been nice to still have that income because, you know, it's nothing like getting paid every two weeks. <laughs> but I, I ended that. So since fall of 2021. And to your point, it's a hustle. I mean, and even if you're even if you're making, you know, substantial amount of money, mm-hmm. it's still like a hustle in terms of just tracking it down and keeping track of, OK, did I pay the taxes? Yeah. <laughs> like how, how much do I set aside for this? And when am I going to get this and which metrics do I need to hit when I get this? And, you know, I guess, you know, really quickly, just for people who aren't familiar with how book deals work, mm-hmm. particularly like a large, a major deal like yours now. Mm-hmm. You'll get like a substantial amount up front, right? You'll get an advance. Right. When we sign and then, but there's still a lot of waiting. Yeah, there's still a lot of waiting. <laughs> there's still a lot of waiting yeah. between you signing the contract and the money actually hitting your account. Yes. And your agent gets 15%. So everybody who's like, Sizzler's on you. I'm like, not, <laughs> not yet. yet. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make a reservation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, you have to hit certain metrics like, you know, okay, so let's say you submit your first draft and then you submit your final draft and then the book is published, the actual publication date, and you get like a chunk each time. Yeah. And then you get money based off of royalties if you hit a certain number. Yes. If you earn out, (laughs) which benefit of the little advance is easy to earn out, which is why I get royalties on church ladies. Big advance, much harder to earn out. So yeah. And I, um, my situation, and for transparency's sake, because we're talking about money, so I'm going to have to talk about money, I also got a two-book deal for seven figures, right, mm-hmm. for my first book or in the book that's coming after that. Thank you. Yes. And the thing is, and you know, I want to get at this a little bit more, I guess now is a good time to do it, is that mm-hmm. with your book, you know, you have been this tremendous success, right, with church ladies winning all these awards, getting optioned and leading to this so that when news breaks of you having this deal, it's like, oh, yeah, Disha. Now, of course, there's going to be niggas hating. <laughs> like, of course. And we could talk about that, too. Of course, niggas is going to be like, you know, wait, what? But it's like if anyone deserves something like this, 
it is it's someone like Disha, right? And so for me, when I signed that deal and I hadn't published anything yet, well, I, I had to self-publish Book of Panama, but I hadn't published like a mm-hmm. not a major house yet. And there was like this pressure and there still is a pressure. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know what? I need to perform in a way that justifies this, not just for me, but for all the people who are attached to this, all the people who know about this. Yeah. And my book could be successful, but if it doesn't meet these certain metrics, if it doesn't earn out, if it doesn't become this tremendous success, then I will feel like a failure. Mm. Now, do you have any of that anxiety now with this new deal? You know, I am so glad that church ladies came first Mm -hmm. so that I could see how the sausage is made because that helps to not have that anxiety. So, for example, I've been on and I'm currently on judging panels, right? So church ladies, one metric of its success was the awards that it got. Now that I sit on awards panels, I realize this comes down to like the book is the book. It's whatever it's going to be. It is the taste of the readers who read the books that are nominated. And, you know, everybody's press nominates their books. For Penn Faulkner, you can nominate your own book, for example. So all of these books come in. Who makes the long list? Who's reading? I have no control over that. So then there's the long list. Then they have the judging panel. Who's on the judging panel? I have no control over that. What are their tastes? You know, were they in a bad mood when they read my book? Was my book the last book they read and they were just exhausted? You know, all of these things that we can't control for. And then somebody wins, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I realized is that there's so many moving parts to this industry and to the whole process. And I only control my part, which is to write the best book that I can and so I also need to define success for myself in terms of things that I can control. Like how I feel about this book, I don't want that to be determined by how other people feel about the book, you know, except like the people that I'm closest to. If my day ones and my friends who feel like day ones are like, what the fuck are you doing? Then I'm not going to be happy. I won't feel successful. But if I love it and my folks love it, I'm good. Everything beyond that is is gravy. And also... And doing the TV adaptation is the other thing that helped me have this perspective, especially when you're dealing with folks in that business in Hollywood, which is like publishing on steroids in not the best ways. There's that fickleness, too. On somebody's whim, all of the work you've done for two years to develop something will never see airtime for any number of reasons, including somebody just waking up and saying, no, we're not going to do that. So again, it was me deciding what can I control? And there's so many things outside of my control that if I worried about those things, I could never write a word, right? Like if I worried, oh my God, is this book going to win awards like Church Ladies? I would never write a word. So I started thinking of it like having more than one child and you have more than one child too. So when you had your second child, you were not like, my daughter is great. Kid, you got to be great in the same ways or else, you know? I mean, don't put words in my mouth, guys. <laughs> I will neither confirm nor deny. Well, I mean, right. Like, the first child always is awesome, which tricks you into having the second child who comes in on some other shit altogether. <laughs> but in fairness to that second child, 
you want them to have their make their own place in the world without the burden of having to live up to the expectation of whoever you know came before. And so I think of the books the same way. And mainly because if I thought any differently, I just wouldn't be able to write. I also recognize that what happened with church ladies was pretty singular, right? And so that would be, I would be shooting myself in the foot. No one should hold their book to that standard because it hadn't happened before in terms of the number of awards that it won. I just don't accept that pressure at all. Yeah, people started asking me about the second book, like right after Church Ladies was long listed for something. And so I kind of saw how I was like, oh, so that's how it's going to be. And so I've had to sort of build up kind of an armor around that. And there's sort of me as a writer, which I keep very separate from me as a public person. And my work, it's not in isolation because I definitely have a writing community. I have a squad. You're a part of that squad. And we rally and support each other and read each other and all of those things. But I knew I had to put up some boundaries as far as the rest of the world for my own sanity. No, I get that. I get that. And and I think also, too, I think you were 50 when Church Ladies published. 49. 49. Yeah. Sorry, I don't want to give you yeah. extra year. I'll take You'll extra take- <laughs> years. I just turned 52. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I was 40 when What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker was published, which, again, for this industry, first time publishing yes. is, we is old. old. It's older. <laughs> right. And I think that one advantage of being older is that, you know, we both have lived, yes. you know, a life, right, and have lives that aren't just about what we write. You know, we have families. Yes. We have responsibilities outside of this. And I think that that maybe gives a perspective that maybe someone who is a bit younger, who is like in their 20s and getting all this sort of recognition. And that happens, you know, people who are young and get this recognition, you know, maybe don't have that same anchoring as someone who is a bit older. I think it's two other things, too. Yeah. We were talking earlier about not going through MFA programs. Mm-hmm. And so there are many wonderful things about MFA programs, but all of the baggage that can come and the things that aren't great, we didn't have to unlearn any of that. We don't have that hanging over our shoulder that in some of those programs, there can be this sort of competitiveness, unhealthy competition, because you and I have talked about good competition. Somebody, you talked about it. It's like seeing somebody who you admire do a thing. You're like, I want to do that. But you still have love for them and you can still celebrate them. But the unhealthy kind of competition sometimes can be bred in MFA spaces. So we didn't have to contend with that. And I'll speak for myself. It also gave me time to have a lot more therapy because 30-year-old me, even maybe even 40-year-old me would not have been able to handle this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, just to expand on your point about the competition, I liken it to like you sometimes see like top athletes Mm -hmm. training together. Yes. In the off season. And it's like they're friends, they're homies, but they're also like, you know what, iron sharpens iron. And if I surround myself with the best, you know, and yeah, okay, you had a great season. I want to have a great season too. So what can I learn from you? Yes. And how can we make sure that each other reaches like our potential? And I think that that is healthy. You know, what's unhealthy is when you want to be the only one. The only one. Thank you. Yeah. And you think that there can only be one at a time and you sabotage other people which, you know, some people in our industry are known for doing too. Yes. <laughs> well, they do. <laughs> but no, I, you're right. Like, I love that analogy. And Nafisa Thompson Spires, our mutual friend, is uh, my critique partner, mm-hmm. you know? And so she's seen 
iterations of this book over the last couple of years. And then my friend Tamara Winfrey Harris has been, we've been reading each other's work because I've been, I've known Tammy almost as long as I've known you. And we've been reading each other's stories, essays, books for the longest time. She was one of my very first readers. I wanted to ask really quickly also, how has the strike affected you? I haven't. So in fall of 2021, my co-writer and I, Tori Sampson, started working on the development of the TV show adaptation of Church Ladies. And we were having an amazing time working through it. Lots of revisions, getting notes from the executives at HBO Max. And we got to version 11 of the pilot. And they then moved us to the next stage, which is the series format document, like the series Bible, which we did a kick-ass job on that. This is what I'm saying. Like, I'm already claiming this. We have written a successful incredible television show, full stop. You may never see it, but we wrote it. We turned in the series format document and two days later, the strike started. So we haven't had any feedback on that. We won't hear anything until the strike is over because, you know, that's just how, that's the protocol. Pencils down. And so, you know, waiting is hard. The uncertainty is is really hard. But for some reason, I feel optimistic. I could be naive, but I'm optimistic that once the strike is over, and I think I got an update from the union that, you know, they're back in talks again, that we'll be able to keep going. So unfortunately, yes, I'm affected. That kind of relates to what the next thing I want to talk to you about, too. You know, in, you you have this development deal, you announce it, mm-hmm. and you also announce the new book deal. Mm-hmm. And now we've talked about this before on how just writers are loathe to talk about money. Mm-hmm. to publicly talk about money, to publicly reveal how much money they're, they're getting, how much money, you know, they made, et cetera. And yet you went forward and did that. Yeah. And so I guess I'm curious, and we've talked about this before, you know, we've tried to be transparent, particularly with Navona, with the students about money and about what money means and how much money this made and how much money that made. But to announce it on a on a larger scale is a thing that, again, that a lot of people in our industry are very reluctant to do. So why did you do it? So I did it for the sake of transparency and the idea of showing what's possible. That doesn't mean like seven-figure deals for everybody. I mean, I also know writers who got seven-figure deals who then their next deal was not a seven-figure deal, you know? So I'm not under any delusion that like it's a new day, you know, or anything like that. Everything any of us get is hard one. And there are no guarantees about the next deal. It's always whatever deal is right in front of you. So one, I just wanted that transparency. And two, I think of some of the reasons that people don't reveal is we've been taught that it's impolite to talk about money. But some of that, I believe, comes from we have to think about who does that serve, right? So when we don't talk about money, when you work at a job, they always say, oh, don't talk to your coworkers about how much you make. Because then your coworker could find out they're doing three times as much work as you <laughs> and getting being paid a third. Yeah. That's why they don't want you to talk about it, you know? So it's like, who does the silence serve? At the same time, we have a mutual friend who also got a very um, nice, or they call a major deal. There's good, nice, major, and they each mean something. So seven figures is a major deal. And this friend of ours did not want it announced the details, and it was announced. And part of that is, 
people start clocking your pockets or have their hand in your pockets. And then you got to tell somebody, get your hand out my pocket. And nobody wants that. You know, nobody wants the pressure. Nobody wants the awkwardness because people are bold as hell. But I'm not worried about that because for the most part, people really don't bother me like that. And I have no problem, you know, being direct. You're also elusive. I mean, you've been <laughs> Pittsburgh, Mississippi, <laughs> Oakland. It's like, where in the world? <laughs> it's Tisha. You got to catch Today, me first. Yeah, you got to catch you. <laughs> Try to lock you down and get some money. It's like, where the fuck is she? <laughs> I got it all in my offshore accounts. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's that's another point about the pressure and expectation when something was like that is revealed and we talk a lot about you know internal pressures within like the industry even within your own work about how when you get a deal like that it's it's hard to kind of not allow that to distract you from doing your work but then also there are the externals yes right and most of us come from you know if you're black in america chances are you come from not the most secure financial background Yes. You know what I mean? Maybe some financial vulnerability. That would be me. <laughs> you know, I'm trying I'm trying to say it as academically as possible. Working class. Niggas is broke, niggas is poor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I grew mean? up in a shotgun house. Yeah. You paint a picture. And so there's that too, where it's like you announce that deal and maybe you're already a bank for certain mm-hmm. family members, but now they think you're a millionaire. Right. And are hitting you up for other things for bigger things instead of like $30 here $200 here it's like you know can I can I hold 2000 <laughs> exactly 5000 I know you got it <laughs> so my family situation is sort of the blessing and the curse of kind of being an orphan cuz both of my parents died in 2005 and so I still have family but We don't have the dynamic where anybody has ever asked me for money. One of my sisters, because my father had five daughters, I'm I'm the oldest of five. I've asked her for money, (laughs) you know, but I also gave her money like when my mom died, you know, and she was not my mother's daughter, but she did so much for us. So, I mean, I think I've just been lucky. Like, I'm not worried about that. And also, I've had people who I don't know as well ask me for money like since 2020, And I've always been happy to give. I'm somebody who I see the GoFundMe or the ask or the cash app thing for somebody who's just trying to get rent for this month or medicine or whatever. And I will quietly contribute. So I'm okay with giving. So I don't know. So it it hasn't happened yet, but I don't feel because the mindset is this, whether it's money or some other kind of help like, oh, well, you, you know, people say you're generous. People say you're helpful, but you told me no. And it's like, Yeah, (laughs) those things can be true. Like, I try to help as much as I can when I can. And sometimes my answer is no. And that's okay, too. That doesn't mean I'm like a fraud or anything. It just means I didn't help you. And so one thing I think if I had to sort of say it concisely is I let other people's problems be their problem, because there is going to be that I need you to prove to me that you're a generous person and that, you know, that you haven't forgotten where you can or whatever. And it's like, I ain't got to prove shit. So that doesn't work on me. I cannot be shamed. <laughs> I am shameless. I feel like I feel like that's the perfect. That's the perfect cap. I don't got to prove shit. <laughs> I'm going to be the quote when we promote this. You should feel y'all. Oh God. I don't got to prove shit to none of y'all niggas. <laughs> 
the rest of the interview. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, teasers, teasers exist for a reason. Teasers. Yeah, cold teasers. opens, teasers, boom, <laughs> trailers. Disha, thank you. Thank you so much for coming through. Thanks for having me. Always great to see you. Always great to have you on. And yeah, and just congratulations again. I mean, there, thank you. We've also talked about how not everyone is a good literary citizen. Yes. And that's something that everyone who knows you can say that you are a good literary citizen. Oh, also. So, again, congratulations. I appreciate that. And it means a lot coming from you. Um, You are truly a day one and I appreciate you. Thank you. So up next for Dear Damon, we'll be joined again by Morgan, the producer. But first, Damon Hayes. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah, this is a hate that I know other people in the fucking mid-Atlantic region are feeling, but these motherfucking lanternflies, man, they are fucking everywhere. I mean, last year they were around, right? And I killed a couple. I would step on a couple, whatever. I had some reluctance. The government asking black Americans to kill another living thing is always like a fraught question. It's like, motherfucker, y'all the government. I'm not going to kill anything for you. But... I probably should have been more vigilant last year in killing as many lanternflies as I could find. Because apparently, for every lanternfly that existed last year, there were 30 more. 30. And we have seen them. They are fucking everywhere. Okay, that's actually not even true. Because they are not everywhere. It's weird because there are pockets of the city where you don't see them at all. For instance, in my neighborhood, I rarely see them. I mean, I see them as often as I see bees. Like, they're around, but they're not, like, everywhere. But then there are parts, like, there's parts of downtown. There's parts of the University of Pittsburgh's campus where they are, like, 100 per square foot. They're swarming all over everything, all over the buildings, all over the ground. There are dead ones everywhere. And now my kids are terrified of them, <laughs> too. And that's a whole nother fucking thing. So, anyway, I feel like we've just had too much to fucking deal with in the last four or five years a motherfucking pandemic a motherfucking virus that comes out of nowhere and kills millions of people fucking insurrections i've been doxxed (laughs) i mean shit like i've gone through too much in these last four or five years and now the motherfucking lanternflies the thing that i guess adds insult to injury is that they're pretty When you look at them and when you look at one of them and not like a thousand of them together, they are actually really beautiful insects. They look like flowers. They look like an advanced butterfly and you can almost appreciate their beauty. And then once you start to appreciate your beauty, 17 of them fucking dab at your neck and you're swatting them off of you 
And now they also have developed a survival instinct because last year you could just smash them and they didn't know anything. They would just look at you while you were putting your foot down on them and they would just be dead. But now they fly away. They're evolving. They're getting smart. This time next year, they'll be sending tweets. And I'm terrified. Morgan, what's good? Not much. Same old, same old. I, I mean, I don't know. You know, we're behind the scenes. We're we're here together. Not like physically. We're in different spaces. A bridge away. A bridge away. Yes, both in Pittsburgh. How was your weekend? I went to a party called Slappers and Bangers, which is like a, it's a trap mm-hmm. slash dance party that happens, I think, once a month. It gets pretty packed. And this was my first time going. My cousin is a DJ, Sarah Honey Young, and she had a set. So I was like, you know, let me go and support her. And it was a good time. I got there about an hour before her set, waited for her set, and then I bounced because it was getting too packed. And I just felt a little anxious. But um, did you feel a little old? I did not feel uncomfortably old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does attract a younger crowd. But like, that's, you know, that's any party. But also that's Pittsburgh for you. All right, Ryan, the producer. Since Morgan, the producer is with us today. We are introducing Ryan, who is the other producer on Stuck with Damon Young. Today, he is going to introduce the question. So Ryan, the producer, <laughs> what we got this week? Dear Damon, what are your thoughts on the state of tipping culture? I'm a tipper, but now just about every store has an iPad that asks you to tip for services, 20% minimums. Where does it end? So this question Morgan sounds like it comes from someone who was a reluctant tipper because I felt I felt like a bit of like anger I felt a bit of animosity of an expectation to tip all of the time what did you think I do think you're asked to tip a lot now like since 2020 since the pandemic and a lot more businesses like started using those iPads I do feel like I'm being asked to tip on things that I just have never tipped before. So it's not a problem, right? But like, it's just new. Well, it's one of those things that I guess has made me kind of rethink the entire process of tipping, the entire dynamic, because, okay, for instance, I live around the corner from a coffee shop. I go there, I don't drink coffee, but I'll get a San Pellegrino. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, San Pellegrino is like 250. In most other circumstances, you buy it, a cashier or server hands you a $2.50 can of something, you're not tipping. This is the end of this interaction. Mm-hmm. But now, because everyone has those screens, now every place you go into has those screens, there's an expectation of tipping. Now, you could always just, you know, not leave a tip. But once you're asked to leave a tip, you kind of have to. You can't just say no, especially if it's a place that you go to frequently. Like, you don't want to be known. I don't want to be known as a nigga who comes in there and buys the same shit every day and never tips a dollar. But I guess my response to me (laughs) is maybe if we're tipping for bigger items, maybe we should tip for smaller items, too. Like, maybe that should just be part of what we've always been doing. Like, maybe this new mechanism that has changed the dynamic of the arrangement is the way that it's always has supposed to have been instead of just us tipping for, like, something that costs more than, like, 20 or $25. 
Well, I think like the way that we're paying for things has changed a lot too. Like everything is kind of, you can use your phone, you know, to scan and pay. You can use your palm in certain places. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think like, you know, the iPad thing, it has changed the way that we're generally tipping. I think if like I was tipping in cash, maybe. Um, But you also have to ask some of these places. Like I'm not going to tip at Starbucks. Because that money is not going directly to, you know, the person taking my order, more than likely. Do you know that? I mean, are you sure of that? I'm positive. Like, you should ask. And I'm not saying I'm positive about Starbucks in particular, but a lot of these places, there will be a cash jar tip, and then there will also be the option to tip on the iPad. And, like, sometimes it's just broadly, like, tipped and spread out, like, with part of their, like, end of the day money it's not necessarily uh given to them individually well is it like supplemental to what they're already getting hourly or is it like how kind of restaurant service work where the tips are kind of factored in most of these places right they do make at least the minimum hourly wage but again i think that's why it's important you should be asking like i ask i just this just happened to me yesterday i was getting coffee slash coffee filters and um Do I usually tip on coffee? I didn't before the pandemic. That's interesting. I mean, it wasn't always a thing. You know, maybe they had a tip jar or something like that. But like, it wasn't a social norm, I don't feel, until now, until this pressure now. I make eye contact with whoever is uh, ringing me out. And if they're still looking at me (laughs) on the tip screen, um, you know, I might do 15%. If they're not, I'm like, no. Again, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I've witnessed coffee being brewed and being made. And it's a process. Yeah. Like it's a physical, extensive process that actually, you know, takes like a skill. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I actually think that even if you weren't tipping, even if people weren't tipping in the past, I think that's something that probably should have been tipped. Like if you're going to tip a burger. Right. Someone brings you a burger or some fries, then why not tip someone who makes you a coffee? Right. Right. No, I don't have a problem with it, but, uh, you know. But what about someone who hands you a cookie? Exactly. The tip isn't coming, like, dependent on what you bought. Like, you know, it's not like, hey, somebody took the time and made your drink correctly and with love. Um, And, you know, hey, you you want 15, you want 20, you want 18%. It's like anything that I purchase it could be anything. Like, yeah, it could literally be a piece of candy or a, or a cookie, and they're asking if I want to tip 15%. They didn't even make the cookie. What's your relationship been with tipping? And I know that this is this is kind of like a fraught question to ask, I think, Black people sometimes, particularly people who didn't like... Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, we didn't go to restaurants when I was growing up. If we ate out, it was takeout. Mm-hmm. Like, I could count on one hand a number of times that we went to like a sit down restaurant. And so tipping, it was a thing that people did, but it wasn't like ingrained in me at a young age. Like I didn't even realize you were supposed to tip bartenders until I was in my twenties. You were that person. Again, when you're young, you're 18, 19, you're going to club, you don't have no money. Yeah. So you're not buying drinks in the club. Yeah. And if you are buying a drink, it's like you're buying the cheapest shit. You're buying like a Long Island or, or something like that. And so... I just did not know, like, oh, there's an expectation of leaving extra money Mm -hmm. (laughs) when you buy a thing. And I was, like, in my mid-20s 
when I had that realization. Yeah. So what's your relationship been just throughout your life with tipping? Yeah, we uh, as a family, we would go out to eat, you know, like on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And so I'm familiar with, you know, always at least seeing my dad tip 20 percent. So, you know, at the minimum when I go out to eat, like that's what I'm doing. If I have maybe bad service, maybe I would do 18 or something. But like at the minimum, usually tipping 20 percent. And my mom is bougie. So like, you know, I feel like in instances where people... Yeah, deserved a tip. She was always tipping. So I'm very familiar with the culture. There's also like that whole book on like who to tip, how to tip, you know, how much you should tip. Because there's certain instances, like if you're going to a hair salon or something and and you're going to the owner that you don't tip. Shit, that's another like my bar. I I didn't start tipping my barber oh. until I was in my mid-20s. If there was like a page to review customers, like you might be on it as like a bad tipper. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is now, I don't know if it's like a overcorrection or overcompensation, but I, I don't tip below 25%. Mm-hmm. Like 25% is like you give me so-so service, you know, you're, you're still going to get 25. Yeah. And if you give me good service, you're probably going to get 30. That's because you're doing well in life. Well, <laughs> I'm serious, though. Like, did that come like at, like after? Well, no, that's something I think, you know what? I think that that's a thing. And I'll admit this, you know, that's the thing that probably developed like late 20s, early 30s when I was aware of like the stereotype of black people not tipping. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think I did have some respectability injected in me where I would over tip mm-hmm. to like overcompensate and be like, oh, I'm not one of these niggas out here. And I think that that sensibility is just stuck with me where, yes, I'm doing better financially than I was, you know, 15 years ago. And so, like, it just makes no sense to be broke and tipping 25% and then have money and then go back to 20. Right. Now, have you had any experiences with people, family members, perhaps someone you dated, a friend, whatever, who were bad tippers? I've had a friend. I did have a friend who... And this was at a point where we were very young, very early in our careers, and he was not a good tipper. And by not a good tipper, I mean, he just didn't tip. And I think my motto is that if you can't afford to tip, again, regardless of like, you know, what you might think of the service, because I feel like some people try to get real fickle about like, oh, you know, my water wasn't icy and they don't want to tip. Even things that happen in the kitchen are not necessarily, you know, your waiter's fault. He was just a negligent (laughs) (laughs) tipper. He just he would just he just wouldn't tip. My friend and I did. We did say something to him. I don't know. Non-tippers are like a different breed. Like they stick by their their right to not tip. It's like Steve Buscemi and, and Reservoir Dogs where he had his whole thing. Like it was a part of his personality. Like, yo, I don't tip. I don't fucking tip. And it's like non-tippers. They're almost like libertarians or like vegans where they make it a part of the personality you need to tell everyone. Yeah. <laughs> like Jehovah's Witnesses. Have <laughs> you met the good friend Jesus Christ? Like, do you know that you're not supposed to tip 20%? They don't tip in Europe. It's like, motherfucker, you don't live in Europe. You're here in America. Right. That's what I was going to say. There's things like in different cultures, I guess, where you don't tip. If we, if we had a better system where people we're making a livable wage, I guess that wouldn't be a factor. Well, so I have a circumstance too. So I was hanging out 
this is probably like 20, 2006, 2007, with a person who I know very well, who I know at the time was making in the six figures. Mm-hmm. Not like barely six figures, but like 300 yeah. a year, something like that. And so we were hanging out. We were in Shadyside. This is the local making 300000 That's a lot of money in Pittsburgh. It's a professional athlete. Okay, yeah, because like you can live well on like $70,000 in Pittsburgh, just so people know. Yes, you can. Yes. <laughs> so this was a professional athlete, right, who I know well. And we went to the place, got separate bills, and I noticed on his bill, which was like $60, he tipped $2. It left like a smiley face. This is your friend? I didn't say anything at the time. But afterwards, I was like, yo, what's up with that? And he was like, what's up with what? What's up with the $2 tip? <laughs> what what happened there? I was like, no, that's, that's what I always tip. This wasn't even like a Steve Buscemi sort of thing where you had like a principal. This was just, oh, you're supposed to tip 2 or $3. That's just what you're supposed to do. And again, this was a nigga who was making like 300 a year at that point. My big issue with like people that don't tip, it's not necessarily the, my one friend that didn't tip, we weren't making a lot of money. And I don't stand by that, that like you, you shouldn't tip because you don't have it. I think if you don't have it, then you learn how to probably cook for yourself. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's not an instance like that. Like if you have a lot of money and you're just not tipping and then also like being a jackass by writing a smiley face with a, a very low tip on a bill, like that says a lot more about you as a person. And again, he was not trying to be a dick, like genuinely. And I usually, my my threshold for this nigga's a dick is low, right? And so he was not trying to be a dick. He just thought that, oh, this is, oh, I paid my bill and oh, here's a couple extra dollars and a smiley face to brighten the day. Maybe nobody's ever told him. I think that's the thing because he was playing basketball in Europe. Okay, okay. And so, you know, he went to high school, went to college, then you go straight from that to playing ball in Europe, you're not as immersed as an adult in social etiquette. And also the European etiquette, you know, I, I guess there are a lot of countries over there where tipping is just not a thing. Okay, though, but how old was he? Um, He's about my age. We're on the same age. I'm, I'm, I'm trying so hard not to reveal who this is. <laughs> look, 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 look. I'm trying very hard. You keep asking, asking too many questions, Morgan. We're going to have to cut this short. I, you know, well, like it, it, it's almost it's really like almost like a blacklist because, again, there is a thing where it's like I had three dollars in my bank account and I had enough money to get this food. And like, that's it. I'm not saying that's not an instance for a lot of people, but like it is a mark on your character. I feel if you like you're a bad tipper or you just don't tip. I agree. I think that anyone at like a certain big ass age who doesn't tip and they have no excuse of like being like. 21 and never had money and like, okay, that's fine. But if you're 30, 40, and you still don't do that and you're American, then yes, that is, that's a character flaw. That's a, that's a red flag. But where does it end though? Like, what are you drawing the line at? Are you just tipping now? Cause uh, out of the guilt, you think you're caping for just all the black people who are bad tippers? Where do I draw the line? Yeah. Or are you just over-tipping because you don't want to be put in that category? I mean, Morgan, you know, I'm in Pittsburgh and, you know, people kind of know who I am. 
here too. So I, you know, I like to go out. I like to, well, I like to eat out mm-hmm. and I like to work while I'm eating out. So part of it, yes, I think that if I have the money and I'm out eating, then yes, I think that people should be compensated and people should be rewarded for their work. Eating is like the standard though. Like what's an egregious point which you've been asked to tip? Like some of these places have been like, what am I tipping for? It feels weird to argue because it's like you're talking about like a dollar or two, but the most egregious or the part that didn't happen before that happens now is like, okay, you're at a store and you're buying like a candy bar or you're buying a cookie. And there's just a transaction of person behind a register handing you Mm -hmm. the cookie or you handing them the candy bar so they can scan it and them handing it back. And the thing is, if you're at Whole Foods or if you're at Target, they're doing the exact same thing. Right. Servers doing the exact same thing with that interaction. And there's no expectation of tipping. But if you're at like a coffee shop, if you're at a smaller market or something of that nature, then they have those things up and there's the expectation of tipping. And I think it doesn't bother me, but I could definitely see someone being like, wait, what? (laughs) What what is happening? What is happening here? I thought this cookie was a dollar. Now I'm paying two dollars. But again, even to litigate this feels like, okay, it's just an extra dollar. I don't know. There's some bookstores here, I feel like, even that uh, have been having that prompt at the end. There are some places, I should just say, that like I wouldn't normally associate with tipping. Food industry, completely fine with that. Um, but, you know, if I'm at a comic book store and I'm being asked to tip Jeff at the end of my transaction. Oh, you've had that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I haven't experienced that at all. If it's a situation where I'm just kind of like, this is probably something that you've adopted post-pandemic or during the pandemic, and it's just kind of like something that every operating system has now, like, and you aren't really being thoughtful of what your store is, you know, no. (laughs) Yeah, I've never been asked to tip on something that I wasn't going to consume, Mm -hmm. aside from a haircut. But I'm not asked to tip. You're expected to tip. You're not asked. So I guess to the person asking the question, I get why people might feel weird about this now. Because, again, it's a thing that became more of a thing, I guess, post-lockdown. People didn't want to touch money anymore. People never really wanted to touch money, but it became even more of like a thing. And so most places, or at least most places I go to in the cities, have these screens, right? And yeah, so now tipping is an expectation for even the smallest interaction. And I think that's just, I don't know. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing. I could see why someone might feel anxiety about it or might feel like, not anxiety, but might feel like, okay, is this too much? But I mean, we're talking, you know, maybe an extra dollar or two. I guess. I don't even round up for that stuff where it's like, do you want your money to go to like childhood cancer? Like, no. I don't know where my money's going. I'm at a rant. I'm I'm pumping gas and you're asking me for more money. Like, no, I'm a thoughtful tipper. Like, I want to make sure that like the person I'm having the interaction with, that's who I want my money to go towards. So Morgan Moody does not give a shit about pediatric cancer patients. That is the point. Nope. Or diabetes or that heart association thing. Like if I'm going to give my money, it'll be more directly. It's not going to be at the end of a transaction. I can't trust that. All right. We know what the teaser will be for this one. I don't trust their accounting. I don't know that. Like, I don't know what they're doing with it. (laughs) My 40 cents. (laughs) 
Morgan Moody is, is pro diabetes is the takeaway from today. I'm pro finding out where your money is going. Make sure your money is going like where you think it's going and you're not just giving 40 extra cents because you don't want to look like a bad black tipper, which is like tied up in so much shame. Morgan Moody, thank you for coming through today. I think we got it. Where can people wait? Do you want to be found? Do you want to be found now? Not really, but like, I don't mind if you do. I'm on Instagram. It's just my name, Morgan Moody. Find me on Instagram. All right. Again, just want to thank these affiliates, Morgan Moody, for coming through. Great conversation, great guests, great topics. It was a lot of fun today. And thank you all for coming. Could have been anywhere else. All these podcasts that exist, too many podcasts, and you came and you listened to mine today. So thank you for that. Also, if you're on the Spotify app, go do the interactive polls, do the interactive questions, questionnaires. I mean, you could get the podcast wherever, listen to it wherever. But if you are on the Spotify app, please go there, have some fun, knock yourself out. And again, if you have any questions about anything whatsoever, anything, hit me up at DearDamon at Crooked.com. All right, y'all. See you next week. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Kendra James and Madeline Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing and mastering by Sarah Gibble-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yasuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. And from Spotify, our executive producers are Lauren Silverman, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Leslie Guam and Crystal Hall Stressler.